If you brought your Bible, and I hope you did, would you take it uh, and open to John chapter 1, please? John chapter 1. We've been looking at the life of John the Baptist. Uh, we've, we've called him the, the forerunner. That's not our title, but that's the title we've been running with. We've called him the forerunner, the one who came before Jesus to announce his birth, to prepare the way for the Lord. And, uh, and so though this is one of John's main functions. He, was, he had come to prepare the way for the Lord. And so about six months before adult Jesus showed up on the scene to start his ministry, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness and, and proclaimed the word of the Lord and began to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. Now, what's interesting about John is that Jesus at one point, and we'll see this, uh, we'll see this a little bit later uh, next week, Jesus at one point calls John the greatest man to have ever lived. But catch this, John the Baptist wasn't present at Jesus' birth. He didn't even make it. I mean, he didn't live long enough to be present at the crucifixion or at the resurrection. John wasn't present, really wasn't even mentioned at the, the birth of the church, the story uh, you know, that we find in the book of Acts. And yet John the Baptist has marked this movement we call Christianity in some, some ways that even to this day we continue to uh, experience and, and see. So what I'd like to do today is uh, to remind you of this man whose life we're going to look at in, in more detail in a minute, but I want to talk about five ways that John the Baptist has left his mark, if you will, on Christianity. Number one, he gave us baptism as a sign of our repentance and commitment to Jesus. He gave us baptism. Of course, we call him John the... Right, which reminds us of what may be one of the greatest lasting contributions, at least that we still partake in today. This, this idea that after I've committed my life to Jesus Christ, after I've crossed the line of faith, I go through this public demonstration of saying to others, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm a child of God. Now, John wasn't the first person to, to baptize. There were others who baptized before him, but he was the first to connect baptism to this um, repentance and, and faith in God and his work. So uh, we call John the Baptist because he was always baptizing, not because he was a deacon at the First Church, First Baptist Church of Bethany, right? Okay, because he was always baptizing. There's different names for, uh, nicknames, if you will, for John the Baptist. Now the scripture calls him John the Baptist. Um, I had a professor at Bethel College who called him John the Baptizer, so we wouldn't get confused and think that, you know, he went to the Baptist church. Those Baptists are always beating us to the buffet. The Eastern Orthodox Church, you know what they call John? <laughs> You're going to love this. John the Forerunner. How cool is that? Um, some Baptist churches, I always get a little confused now, some Baptist churches calling John the Immerser because they, uh, I think they, they don't want people to be confused thinking that they too wear camel hair and eat locusts and wild honey. Okay, well, hang with me here. Um, it, believe it or not, even the Muslims, even the Islam faith has a nickname for John the Baptist. They call him John the prophet or the prophet John. 
So one of the lasting marks that, that John gave, we find in his name, in his nickname, John the Baptist, he gave his baptism as a sign of our repentance and commitment to Jesus. Secondly, he told us that Jesus was coming. This was his job as a forerunner, right? He, he came to prepare the way for the Lord. And so as we read the, the gospel accounts of Jesus's life, we, we see that John did just that. Now, the Old Testament had done this for a while, Right? All the way back to Genesis 3, God said that, that from Eve there would come a man who would crush the head of evil. Moses did this. He said that, um, that, that a prophet would come that would be greater than, than himself, greater than Moses. The, the, the other prophets did this. Isaiah, there's a lot of messianic prophecies in Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Daniel, and, um, and Micah, and Zechariah, and, and Malachi, and other prophets. But then we get to Malachi in the Old Testament, and it's done. There's not another word from the Lord. There's not another promise that someone is coming. The last promise we have is in Malachi. And then for 400 years, God's people don't hear a fresh word from the Lord. And then came John. And through John's vocal cords... God's people again hear God speak. And it's John preparing them to hear God's voice through God's own vocal cords through Jesus Christ. He prepared the way he gave his baptism. He, he announced that Jesus was coming. Number three, he, he gave Jesus his first sermon. Okay, he gave Jesus his first sermon. Maybe this won't speak to you like it speaks to me. And I never really put these, I never connected these dots until this week. But, but let me show you, show you what I mean. John's preaching was so powerful. We don't have a lot of it recorded in the New Testament. But what we do have, John's preaching was so powerful that Jesus said, I think I'll borrow that. Let me show you what I mean. Um, Matthew 3, 1 and 2, we're going to put it on the screen. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. What was John's sermon? What was the big idea of his sermon? It's right there, that last part of that top verse. You can do better than that. The answer's right there. What's, what's the big idea of John's sermon? Okay, well, you got the first word, and then, the, yeah, the rest of the sentence, Pastor. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, here's what Matthew writes a chapter later. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Say it. What did he preach? Have you ever seen that before? I hadn't seen that until this week. Jesus plagiarized John. Okay, now, any preacher that I know that's worth their salt would say, no, 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 no. You see, um, the, the message that John preached was from God. It was from the Holy Spirit working in his heart to proclaim those words. Jesus is the Son of God. God the Father is the first member of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. It was God's sermon anyway. It's okay if, if you know, God the Son preaches it too. So that, that would be the argument that Jesus didn't actually plagiarize John. John was just preaching Jesus' message first. But still, can you imagine putting on your resume... Jesus liked my sermon so much, he stole it from me. I mean, 
John made great impact on Christianity, you know it. Sorry, I guess as a preacher, that just, uh, that's cool. Number four, he introduced Jesus to his first disciples. John introduced Jesus to his first disciples. I don't mean to be sacrilegious, but he was a matchmaker of sorts. He said to his disciples, that's the one who you want to follow. Follow him. We're going to look at that a little bit later today in a few minutes. Number five, this is for next week. I'll give you a sneak peek. Number five, the other mark that John has left on Christianity that perhaps we don't fully comprehend, he was the first martyr of the Christian era. Ooh, that's not a word or a value we like to talk about much in, 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 in the church of America, and the church of the United States. We don't like to think about that. We don't like to talk about that. But that was a huge contribution that John made. He was the first to willingly lay down his life for the gospel and the cause of Jesus Christ. Join us next week and we'll look more at that. So, like I said, today is the last Sunday of 2019, not only the last Sunday of the year, but the last Sunday of the decade. Now, in a year, when we gather to worship again, between now and then, if we live our lives right, we'll have each had roughly 365 days, 365 opportunities to introduce other people to Jesus. To be a forerunner, like John the Baptist was the forerunner for the people of the God, people of God will have an opportunity to be a forerunner for Jesus Christ in the lives of those who today, as we sit and open God's word, are far from him. We'll have the chance to do this. And so what I'd like to do today is I'd like to look a little bit at John's life, and I'd like to see some, some examples that he gives us of how we can be faithful to do that, how we can introduce our, our friends and family to Jesus Christ, if you will. We're going to start reading in John chapter 1. I'm going to start at verse 19. It's a big passage today, but hang on. We're going to get through it. We'll be fine. Um, John 1, and just so we're all on the same page, so there's no confusion, we're reading about John the Baptist from the Gospel of John, but these are two different people, right? So as far as we know, John the Baptist didn't write any scripture. Well, as far as we know, we, John the Baptist didn't write any scripture. We, we don't have a book in the Bible by John the Baptist. We do have a few books that bear the name John, but they're written by a different John. They're written by John the Apostle, or he's called in scripture John the Beloved. So I know it can get a, a little confusing at, time, at times, but when we read about John today, we're reading about John the Baptist, written by John the Beloved, John the Apostle, who also wrote not only the Gospel of John, but 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then the book of Revelation. So those four are at the end of the New Testament. Um, but this is one of the Gospels according to John the Beloved. We're going to read about John the Baptist. Verse 19, follow along. Now this was John's, John the Baptist, this was John the Baptist's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He didn't fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. These are kind of weird questions, perhaps, from our vantage point to ask John the Baptist. Are you Elijah? What, what's that all about? We don't believe in incarnation. Jews didn't believe in incarnation. Well, that, what's that all about? Well, in the Old Testament, it was prophesied that before the Messiah came, 
Elijah would show up on the scene again. And they're saying, is that you? Are you Elijah? Are you the one who's, you know, who's been predicted and we've been expecting and, and waiting for? The one would come, who would come before the day of the Lord. And, and, and uh, he says, no, that's, that's not me. I'm not him. He was symbolically Elijah. But he's saying, I'm not, I'm not Elijah. They said, are you the prophet? What's that all about? Well, like I said earlier, Moses had said uh, to, the, to the people of Israel, this is Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. And so the Jews at the time, they just assumed that maybe the prophet would be one, you know, another one who would come who uh, would, you know, prepare the way for the Messiah or would at least appear. It's another appearance they were waiting for. And they say, are are you him? Are you the prophet? Now we know now from our vantage point in history that the prophet was synonymous with the Messiah, that Jesus was that prophet that Moses predicted, but they had no idea. They were, they, they just knew to be expecting someone. And so they asked John, are you him? And he says, he says, no, So verse 22, finally they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, and Pastor Greg did a great job in the first week of this series telling us about the words of Isaiah the prophet. This is a quote from Isaiah. I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophets, the prophet? So these verses kind of set the scene for what's going to happen here. The example that we're going to see in John's life uh, uh, about how to share the reality of Jesus, how to be a forerunner for those who haven't yet heard the gospel of God's grace and, and what that looks like and, and, and if we can you know, kind of put our 21st century Western lenses over the text, you know, kind of what are, what are some steps or what's a process that we could do to handle it as masterfully as John does. So before we, before we look at those, those steps, those, that process that John takes, I need to make sure we're all on the same page about something. None of us can save anyone. Salvation is not our job. It's not our responsibility. And we don't have the juice to do it. Just like our salvation is not, does not come from anything that we do, it's a free gift from God alone to us. The same is true of salvation for other people. Only God can grant salvation. Only God can save someone. Only the Holy Spirit can lead someone to the point where they would acknowledge that they need God's salvation, that they need Jesus Christ, that they need the mercy offered at the cross. So as we talk about this, let's not think about the fact that uh, the notion, the idea, the, the false thinking that we have to save people. We can't do that. God saves people. But he invites us into, the, into the, the journey. We do have a responsibility to be, Scripture uses the word ambassadors for Christ. We have the responsibility to be witnesses for what God is doing and has done. But that responsibility only goes so far. 
As a matter of fact, our responsibility, Scripture tells us, is a lot like farming. There's a sense in which we are salvation farmers. And what I mean by that is, is we have a responsibility to uh, prepare the soil. We do that through the way that we live. Jesus said it like this. Um, uh, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So we prepare the soil in people's lives through the way that we live, through the way that we interact with them, through healthy relationships, through honest living, through, uh, you know, through, through a good work ethic, through acknowledging when we're wrong and asking for forgiveness. We, uh, we live as people of the light so people see God's light through us. And, and in that sense, we're preparing the soil for the next part. And that's where we plant the seed. We have a responsibility to plant the seed. We, we plant the seed through telling people about Jesus Christ. Through sharing the gospel with people. There's, there's this notion out there that if we just live the right way, that's, that's all the world needs to see. And that's bunk. Matter of fact, Paul says it like this in Romans. How will they know of someone of whom they've never heard? And how will they know of him unless someone tells them? Not shows them, not lives a good life in front of them. That's part of it. That's preparing the soil, but we have to tell people. We have to tell people about God's love and mercy and forgiveness and acceptance in Jesus Christ. We, we plant the seed of the gospel by telling people about Jesus, by sharing the gospel, by talking about what he's done in our life, the, the difference he's, he's made, the, the change he's wrought in us. We plant the well, we we, uh, we prepare the soil. We plant the seed, and then uh, and then then Jesus tells a parable. I, I think he wants us to understand that we also protect the seed. So like we water it, we we keep weeds away, we you know we shoo the birds away, we uh, we do whatever we can so that that seed can take root in the soil. Right? We we um, we do everything in our power to walk with that person. The most effective evangelism strategies aren't the ones that stand on a corner with a bullhorn and say, repent or go to hell. I mean, God may use those in his divine providence, in his, in his amazing grace, but the most effective evangelism approaches are the ones who say, this coworker of mine needs Jesus. And so I'm going to live a life before him that points to God. I'm going to pray for God, and I'm going to ask the Spirit to give me the courage and the strength to speak the gospel when I have a chance. I'm going to plant seeds, and then, and then I'm going to continue to walk. I'm going to continue to walk with that person and live with that person and get to know that person. I'm going to do everything I can to keep lies and, and, and unhealthy things, as far as, I, as far as it depends on me, away so that the seed can take root. That's our responsibility. What we don't do, what we can't do is make the seed grow right? Like I have a responsibility to prepare the soil, to plant the seed, and then to protect the seed that, that by God's grace I've, I've planted. But the soil has a responsibility to accept the seed, to allow the seed to grow and in and through and behind and around and in ways that we don't understand that God has a job to offer salvation, to make the seed grow. Paul says it like this, I planted the seed. He says this to the church at Corinth. I planted the seed Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who, plant, he who plants nor he who waters is anything when it comes to saving people. 
Only God who makes the seed grow. So as we talk about how to share our faith, John style, if you will, understand this isn't your pastor saying, now we got to go out and save some people. God saves people. We have a responsibility. There's steps that we can take, things we can do. Let's look at those and see how John played them out. There's, a, there's an old adage that says, um, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him. Oh, you've heard that one. Fantastic. Have you heard this one? Um, but you can feed him salt. Have you heard that part of it? So I can't force a horse to drink, but if I give him enough salt, he's going to want to drink. Um, the Bible says it much more beautifully. In Colossians 4, 6, Paul writes, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. This is the first part of what John does here as he strives to be a forerunner, to introduce people to Jesus Christ. He wets an appetite. He wets an appetite. Notice verse 26 in chapter 1. I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one who you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. And so they, they ask, who are you? And why are you baptizing? And John says, time out. There's someone so much greater than me, and I baptize in his name. As a matter of fact, he's so much greater from, than me that I, I can't even, like, I'm not even worthy to unlace his sandals so that his feet can be washed. Like, I'm not, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the job of the, the lowest household servant. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do that because he's so great. Now to us, we read this and we, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what we think. I don't know that it really connects with us, but, um, but to the Jews who were listening to him and who asked him, who are you and why are you doing this? They're going, whoa. If this guy, John the Baptist, who already has a following, who's in the wilderness and has people coming out to hear him preach, if he's going to say, I'm not even worthy to touch this guy's sandals. We got to know who this guy is. We got to know more about him. Who is, who is this John the Baptist talking about? He whets their appetites. He, uh, he, he gives them some salt. He gets them interested in, in, in what God has to say through him. And then notice what he does next. He tells them about Jesus. Notice starting at verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. So what John does here is he introduces people to Jesus as he taps in to some needs in, in some language that they can recognize. This probably isn't how we would do this. But see, the Jews understand this language of the Lamb of God who takes away sin. Because twice a year, their whole nation pushed a pause button and they celebrated, they had feasts and celebrations to remember the lamb who became the substitute. 
They have a, a feast in the spring called Passover. Perhaps you remember about Passover. Uh, this goes all the way back to when they were slaves in Egypt, and God said, I'm bringing them out. Here's what needs to happen, Moses. Tell the people on this night they need to sacrifice a lamb. They need to put its blood over the doorposts of their home. And then in the middle of the night, when every other firstborn, not only child, but also animal in the land dies... Any firstborn inside of a house with blood over the door will be spared. And so the Jews already had this sense that, 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 the, that there's a lamb that, that becomes a substitution, that takes their place, that prevents their death. That was Passover in the spring. In the fall, they, they celebrate uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, what they did is they would bring two goats before the high priest and one would be sacrificed on the altar as a sin offering. And on the other, the priest would lay his hands and, and, and symbolically confess the people's sin and that they needed God's forgiveness. And then that, that goat would be sent into the wilderness, symbolically carrying the sin of the people of God away from the people of God. And so when John says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he's saying to them in language they can understand, this is the one that we celebrate twice a year. This is the one we've been looking forward to. He's not just here to take the, the place of, of a single family and a single dwelling unit. He's here to, to be the substitute for the entire world. He's not just going to take an individual's sins on him, not just once a year, permanently, forever, the Lamb of God, the, the goat of God, if you will, who takes away the sin of the world. This is it. This is the one we've been waiting for. And again, the people sitting, you know, the, the Jewish men and, and women sitting on the, 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 the edge of the Jordan River that day would have been like, this is it. This is what we've been waiting for. And in my lifetime, nonetheless, he whets their appetites. He, he tells them about Jesus, and then he does two things kind of at the same time. They kind of blur together. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 32. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who you will baptize with the Holy Spirit excuse me, is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John says, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. So after he whets their appetite and then tells them about Jesus, he plants the seed. John circles back in verse 32 and, and he describes what Jesus can do for them. He describes what Jesus can do for them. Now again, this is language that they understood, kind of. You see, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would show up on the scene for specific events, for specific purposes. The Holy Spirit would, would come on a person like, um, like Samson, for example. The, the Holy Spirit would come on Samson and he'd kill an entire Philistine battalion with a jawbone of a donkey, right? Like only the Holy Spirit could do that. You know, even Chuck Norris couldn't do that. I mean, unless the Holy Spirit fell on Chuck Norris and there was Philistines that needed to die by the word of the Lord. Okay, so, I mean, this is how it worked in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit would come as far as the people understood for a specific purpose, a specific reason, and it would be finite. 
The Spirit would fall on a person. They would accomplish what God needed them to accomplish, and the Spirit would, would lift or would be um, you know, removed. They would no longer have access to the Spirit's power in the way that they had. But John says, this guy, I saw the Holy Spirit come and rest on him. John's saying this man doesn't just have the Spirit of God for a specific action, for a season of time. It was John's testimony that, that God's Spirit would stay on this man, would stay with this man, and that was something that, uh, that, that this man, Jesus, could offer others. So I would suggest that, that as we think about who we can, how we can introduce our friends and family to Jesus, we should think about, can I do the same thing? What are some needs that, that, that this person, this coworker, this family member, this friend, this neighbor, what are some needs they have that God can satisfy? What's their deepest weakness that God can speak to? This is why the recovery groups are so effective. Because groups like AA and NA and Celebrate Recovery and the others, they start with the reality that if you're going to overcome this addiction that you've had and you haven't been able to kick, you're going to have to have a higher power. They speak to the deepest need in a way that the, uh, the people can understand and describe what... Jesus can do for them. John also, kind of in the same breath, shares his experience with Jesus, with the people. We read this in verse 33 and, and 34. He talks about how he saw the dove come down and what God had said to him about, you know, the one, the one you'll baptize, I'll baptize with the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, people can't argue with this, especially in our day and age where experience is king. People can't argue with this. They can debate you on ideas and creeds and what's right and what's wrong and what's the best political party, which, by the way, should have nothing to do with conversations about salvation. But they can't argue about your experience with God. They can't argue about the difference that God has made in your life, the, the changes that he's producing in you. And so John just shares his experience. <clears throat> So as, as John the Beloved, John the Apostle, writes this account, he, uh, you know, he's writing um, in less, what, about a page, less than a page, depending on how your Bible's laid out, these conversations that, that have happened. And it's easy to think John the Baptist had the Holy Spirit to such an extent that he said people needed to repent, doggone it, and they repented and were baptized right then. But, but what I want you to see is something in the text, the way it plays out. This whole thing that we've been reading today started in verse 19, right? The, the people, the religious leaders came to him and said, who are you? How and why are you doing these things? Verse 19. And then, then John goes on as we read through verse 28. And he wets their, he responds to their question. He wets their appetites. And then notice how verse 29 started. Verse 29 started with three words, the next day. And that's when John tells him about Jesus. And so that takes us like through verse 34. And then verse 35, which we're going to read in a minute, starts with these three words, the next day. And as we continue to read, we get a little further down in verse 43. And go ahead and look. What are the first three words in verse 43? 
You probably don't have to look if you've been following along. What are the first three words in verse 43? The next day, fantastic. So I want you to catch this. This is a process that happens over the course of, in the Gospel of John, four consecutive days. John the forerunner didn't just say repent, and 30 seconds later, people were in the water getting baptized. Even for John, there was a process where it took time and, and uh, you know, it took consistent effort, repeated effort. John doesn't, we don't get a sense from the, from the, the, the gospel that, that John the Baptist gets discouraged on day one when they don't understand or they don't believe or they don't get baptized. We don't get a sense that John's going, oh man, I thought I was a Christian and these people won't even, like they won't even listen to me. We, we don't get a sense that, that, that John thought his salvation was dependent on whether or not he could lead people to follow Jesus. We get a sense that, that John knew that at all times and all things, but especially when we're talking about salvation, there's three parts. John understood there's a part that he plays. He prepares the soil. He plants the seed. He waters the seed. He understands that there's a part that the soil plays. It has to be receptive to the work of God in its life. He understands there's a part that God plays. Only God gives salvation. Only, only God ultimately can lead people to receive salvation, to respond according to the grace of God. John seems to get it as we read here that his responsibility was just to move the conversation along. Day by day by day by day. To be a faithful farmer, to be persistent, to persevere, to, to keep going, to keep doing what he needed to do, to be the forerunner, to introduce people to Jesus Christ. So on day three of the, of the, the day by day by day by day, here's what happens. Verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, Jesus replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. So John sees Jesus after a couple days of talking about Jesus and his experience with Jesus. And he sees Jesus and he, is, he encourages his followers. There he is. Why don't you follow him? I think encourage is the key word here. We never cajole people. We don't guilt people. We don't pressure people. We don't try to force anyone into following Jesus. We just encourage them to listen, to ask, to pray. If people make a response, if salvation is initiated by anything other than the work of God in someone's heart, the Holy Spirit calling and drawing people, if they respond because we've guilted them or because we've offered them some kind of incentive or um, because we've cajoled them or because they just want us to be quiet, if they respond for any reason other than the work of the Holy Spirit, it's not going to last. 
Our goal is salvation, fruit that will last. So we prepare the soil, we plant the seed, we water the seed, and, and we do what we can to help the seed grow. Or to say it like we saw John do it here, we whet the appetite, we tell them about Jesus, we describe what Jesus can do for them, we share our experience with Jesus, and we encourage them to become a follower of Jesus. This isn't rocket science. It's not difficult. You don't have to have college degrees or extended theological degrees to do this. This is something each of us can do. I have complete confidence that every follower of Jesus Christ in this room can do this, including me, when I'm looking at someone who needs to hear about Jesus and lacking the courage. What would it look like to do this? How would you start a conversation with someone? How would you, be, you begin to plant the seed after you've been preparing the soil for a while, uh, after, uh, after their appetite is wet and they, they want to know, how, how, what would you say? Could you say something like, you know that weight you've been carrying these, these days, that weight that you've been carrying lately? That weight could be from anything, right? Like we all carry weight, don't we? The, the guilt of sin, the, the pressure to meet the budget, the... Uh, I mean, the weight of debt, uh, discouragement, grief from losing a loved one, uncertainty about what comes next and what's going to happen, the pain of a relationship that's falling apart. We all carry weight. What if you would say, you know, that weight that you're carrying? Jesus can lift that weight. He can give you your joy back. He can give you your hope back. He can give you your confidence back. He can help you restore that relationship. How do we do that? What does that look like? Everyone that God brings before us, everyone that he puts in our path, has a need that only God can fill. Solomon said it like this in Ecclesiastes. God has played eternity on the hearts of people. So what is that need? How can God speak to that? You can be sure that God wants to meet that need. You can be sure that God wants to speak to that longing, that desire, that he wants to heal that pain. You can be sure that if you entrust it to him, He will do it. It's actually how John, the beloved, closes this account. Remember, it started with John the Baptist faithfully, day after day after day, doing his part as a salvation farmer, if you will. But then it shifted. John said, that's him, follow him. They followed him. And then notice what John the Beloved writes, verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. So as soon as Andrew met Jesus for himself, He says, I got to bring someone. Someone else has to know about this Jesus. 
Jesus looked at Simon and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Verse 43, the next day, day four, John the Baptist is out of the story now. He started this thing three days ago, longer ago than that, but in John's narrative, three days ago. And, and, and now he's not even present when these men choose to follow Jesus and bring others along. This isn't a point with a fill in the blank, but I wonder, can I do that? Am I okay with that? Am I okay if I prepare soil and plant a seed and do what I can to bring it along and someone else gets to see it grow? John the Baptist could. The next day, verse 43, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Now watch what Philip does. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathanael asked. Come and see, Philip said. So John's doing two things here. First of all, we see that if each one will reach one, if each of us will say, there, are, there is someone God has put in my life that I can take to Jesus. Jesus will do amazing things. That he, he'll, Jesus will be faithful. He'll take it from there. And John's also telling us, I, I think here through the example of Nathaniel, that we don't have to argue with people. We don't have to debate people. I don't think we even have to convince people in the way we think about convincing. Jesus is more than capable to defend himself. He's more than capable of answering their questions and, and overcoming their doubts. We just got to get him in front of Jesus. Verse 47, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You're going to see greater things than that. He then added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So John the Baptist was the forerunner. He's the one who prepared the way for the appearance of the Messiah. Capital F, forerunner. John the Baptist was also the small f, forerunner. He's the one who prepared individuals, he prepared people to meet Jesus. He whet their appetite. He told them about Jesus. He gave them an opportunity to follow Jesus. And in that sense, each of us here can be a forerunner. Now listen, it's easy to think, well, we hire a pastor to tell people about Jesus and that's what he does on Sunday morning, doggone it. By God's grace, that's what I hope to do, continue doing on Sunday mornings. But God has placed in each of your lives, each of our lives, people that your pastor your Sunday school teacher, your small group leader, 
can never reach for Jesus Christ. I cannot be the forerunner for your coworker. I'm not the forerunner for your neighbor. Pastor Greg is not the forerunner for your family members. By God's grace, if we have an opportunity, we'll play a part. But God's put you in their life. God's called you to be their forerunner. This doesn't have to be difficult. You're not going to mess it up. You can't mess it up. Well, the only way you can mess it up is by not doing it, by remaining silent. There are some people who will only be reached as we who are the faithful people of God whet their appetites, as we tell them about what Jesus can do for them, as we introduce them to Jesus, as we encourage them to follow Jesus. This year, Beulah, can we do that together? Can we each find for whom we are the forerunner? For each of us, who is God sent? I want you to prepare them to meet me. As I close this in prayer, I'm, gonna, I'm going to ask God that he would place a name in your heart, in your mind, of someone who by God's grace, you'll have the opportunity to be a salvation farmer with, to prepare the soil of their heart, to plant the seed of the gospel, to help that seed take root, Lord willing, and maybe even to see them come to faith in Christ. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are willing that none should perish. We thank you that uh, although certainly you could snap your fingers and, and you could, uh, uh, you know, by sheer force of your will and your loving kindness, you could, uh, you could, with the word from your mouth, make us all people of God, make us all followers and devoted and committed. But, uh, but in your grace and in your mercy, you've given us free will. Have you, you've invited each of us into that work. So, Father, I pray that, that as we come into 2020 and what's left of 2019, that, that, that we would understand that like John was the forerunner, you're also calling us to be forerunners. To work in the lives of those around us, the, uh, the person on the other side of the cubicle or the receptionist in the other office or the, uh, the neighbor down the street or around the corner or... Uh, that family member who, uh, who has wandered from the Lord. Or perhaps it's the, uh, the server in the restaurant that we frequent and, and we always sit in her section and we've been building a relationship. And, and, uh, and Lord, could this year be the year when, um, when we have the privilege, the opportunity to plant the seed, to, to perhaps see some fruit grow. Lord, I pray that in these moments as we pray, that in each of my brothers and sisters' hearts and minds here today, that, that by your Spirit you would speak a name. Or, or perhaps uh, uh, on their mind's eye you would give them a picture of a person, maybe someone they know now, or maybe someone... 
uh, whose path they're going to cross in the near future. Father, would you impress on each of us someone in whose life we could be a forerunner this year, someone in whose journey we could partner with you to lead them to follow Jesus Christ. Father, we would all love to be like John the Baptist where, where after you know, just, just three days or four days, we, uh, we see this person, these people follow Jesus. And yet we all have a sense that it often takes longer than that. So would you help us to be faithful? When it's hard and we feel like we're in way over our head, when they have questions we don't know how to answer, when, uh, when we've you know, messed up and it seems like maybe we've forever harmed the name of Christ or our, our witness, by your spirit, would you help us to keep going? Who as the farmer, when the fields are flooded or when there's no rain or when the weeds attack or when the vermin won't leave the plants alone, Would you help us to be like a farmer who remains faithful, who takes it in stride, who trusts the Lord of the harvest, knowing that the harvest is the Lord's work, and help us to be faithful. Father, we pray this for your glory. We pray this because we know that you want people introduced to Jesus. You want people to see and to taste and hear your goodness. You want your kingdom to grow, your glory to be known throughout the earth. And so we pray this for your kingdom and for your glory, not for notches on our belt, not for, you know, people in our pews. But we pray this for your glory so that we can taste and see afresh and anew the sweetness of your salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.